Between the Lines with Andrea Gilligan. This is News Talk. You're welcome along to News Talk Between the Lines programme with myself, Andrea Gilligan, where we'll be taking a closer look at some of the main stories and issues of interest. My thanks to everyone who got in contact about our last episode discussing the issue of sexual harassment and sexual violence and asking why sex crimes are on the rise here in Ireland. You can still listen back to the podcast on our website at newstalk.com or on the Go Loud app or on iTunes. And as always, you can get in contact with us today by emailing between the lines at newstalk.com or on Twitter at myself at Andrea Gilligan. Well, coming up today, we'll be discussing the future of education. We'll be asking how we teach our children in early years and primary school and is there enough playtime. Joining us to discuss, we have an expert panel, but starting today, we're joined in studio by Kira O'Donnell, who's the National Director with the uh, Professional Development Service for Teachers. Kira, first of all, thanks very much for joining us in studio. Thank you, Andrea, for having me. Just first of all, um, Kira, what exactly is it, just because people won't know, the, the PDST, the Professional Development Service for Teachers, what do you do? Yeah, the PDST is um, a Department of Education state-funded uh, support service programme for teachers primary and post-primary. And essentially, um, our work is involved in the continuing professional development of teachers after they leave college and after they secure um, probation. So it's the mechanism, I suppose, by which teachers can learn and develop throughout their career. And we provide that kind of support in a range of priority areas, depending on what the national policies are at the time, but also depending on the kind of needs that teachers or schools identify themselves. So when there's new changes to the curriculum or perhaps there's a new, you know, um, um, maths, not a maths subject, but a new maths curriculum being rolled out in a school, you guys come in and train the teachers? Yeah, at national level, um, uh, the, the, the policy is uh, is announced and then after that we support the schools to implement the changes that uh, the policy demands, basically. Okay. In terms of where we're at at the moment in Ireland, like obviously even from my own time in the school system, there have been huge changes now in the, in the way that I would have been taught and would have learned mm-hmm. subjects versus to how they've been rolled out and taught in schools now. Sure. Just... Talk us through, perhaps, Kira, maybe some of those changes that have taken place, if you can. Yeah, well, I think um, the best place to start here is that the kind of learners that we need for society today are very different kind of learners than they were, let's say, even... 10, 10 years ago. Mm. Um, the skills that are required in the workplace now are even different skills than, than, than were needed a decade ago. So teachers, I suppose, are charged very much now with preparing learners for a very different world to what they were a decade or even 20 years ago. And as a result, the kind of teaching methodologies and the way that teachers attack their job in the classrooms has to change. For example, this over-alliance perhaps on orderly desks and silent classrooms and, and textbooks and rote learning and recollection mm. of facts. Um, that that, that that doesn't fit with, with, with the kind of learning needs that uh, th- th- that society needs today. What we're looking at now is opportunities for students to be able to learn in a way where they collaborate, where there's open discussion, where uh, the teacher really is a facilitator of learning as opposed to being up there as the sole validator and the expert of knowledge. The idea is that the, the, the students are the ones that ask the questions. The students are the ones that inquire. Uh, the students are the ones, I suppose, that, that lead their own learning, but with scaffolding and and support from the teachers. So Irish teachers, or teachers generally in other jurisdictions as well, have really had to adapt the way they they do their jobs in the classroom um, in order to respond to the needs of learners nowadays and move, I suppose, with regard to what 
what what modern policy and contemporary curricula uh, uh, demand in terms of what does learning look like now okay. in the classroom? So uh, just talk us through at the moment, Kira, the, the primary school setup about how much of a percentage of the day-to-day teaching is given to, say, the core subjects or the English, Irish, maths or how much is there, you know, actually um, allocated to the perhaps additional subjects or those that aren't deemed as the... the yeah, well, I suppose the, the primary curriculum really is a very holistic curriculum. So it's a pretty fluid day in that uh, primary teachers are generalists and really ultimately every subject should have an impact on each other with literacy and numeracy very core to all of them. But certainly time is set aside um, for the teaching of literacy and numeracy, not quite like it is in the UK where you'd have a literacy hour or a numeracy hour, but certainly a, a dedicated amount of time mm. has to be put in place for literacy and and numeracy. But that's not to say that literacy and numeracy can't be taught to other subjects. And that's where the other subjects, I suppose, find their place. They have their discrete time. But I do need to emphasise that although there's a timetable there of sorts, that the way the primary teacher teaches very much in an integrated way. And uh, subjects have opportunities for enhancing other subjects. And a lot of our listeners will be aware in more recent times, for instance obviously the Education Minister Joe McHugh's decision to look at history for instance as a compulsory subject now at Mm -hmm. junior cycle. Like how will that be rolled out in schools then or will it just be a case that more time will be given to history and that it will be taught more frequently? Yeah well I suppose it, it it will regain its place um, in, in the curriculum uh, at junior cycle, um, it will enter the, I suppose, the the uh, the system again now in a more formal way than it would have, um, um, you know, um, in in the la- in the last couple of years when when it, it didn't have that didn't have that place. But just going back to primary school, I mean, you know, I suppose it does make sense in many ways because history is a core subject at primary level as well. And one of the big changes that were that was I suppose introduced back in 1999 with the new national curriculum then was that history would actually begin at junior infant level. And that was unheard of when I was at mm. school. You get your history book in third class. Whereas nowadays you've got very, very young children who are developing as historians and looking at things like time and chronology and how their grandparents yeah. lived and how people lived back in the day. It may not be as formal as it is in older classes, but history has, has a role to play in that whole role of the past and how time evolves and how things change over time. Um, is part of the learning experiences of even the youngest children now. Yeah, a lot of people will tell you that they, you know, I liked a certain subject in school or this subject in school and a lot of it tends to be based sometimes on the teacher and how the subject was actually taught to them as opposed to perhaps maybe their interest or their, you know, understanding of an actual, of the actual, um, the the subject matter, if you like. Mm-hmm. How do you describe how we teach in Ireland? Like, for instance, our own teaching system is very different to that, for instance, in the north, where a lot of people would be familiar with like the A-levels at at certainly at secondary school level, where they focus much more time on the continuous assessment idea versus the way we actually assess examinations here. Yeah, well, at the moment, I suppose we still have the high stakes leaving certificate exam. Um, in this jurisdiction. And I mean, at the moment, there's a major senior cycle review ongoing at the moment that's going to look at that and going to look at, I suppose, the the place that that high stake still continues to hold and the grip that it has in the system. But it's important to recognise, I suppose, that that has changed at junior cycle level where there is far more um, an emphasis now on continuous assessment. And there is an emphasis on teachers themselves looking at the work of students and making those judgments.
assessments and evaluations on students and also the role that the student now has in their own assessment, that students can recognise what it is that their work needs to improve based on feedback and based on their own critical reflection mm. of their own work. That, that's, a, that, that, that's quite groundbreaking in, in terms of reaching into that space. And I think we're doing very well over the last few years in getting there. Like any change, it's going to take time. Yeah. Because I remember my own time, even for a certain subjects in the Leave Insert, like, and it was an awful way to do it. But I would have focused on subjects that allowed you to do the kind of the rote learning, where I could go in and learn off four or five S's, and I knew that some of these needed to come up, and you just regurgitate the whole thing. Now, mm-hmm. if you drew had a blank on the day, you were in you were in bother. But there's still a lot of students work around around that it's it's I suppose it's the last minute cramming like yeah and I suppose I will say that as long as there is a certain focus on the high stakes end of of year product it's going to be very hard I suppose to completely diminish that kind of that, that, that kind of mentality and it brings us back really to what education is all about is it about you know a final product and an outcome mm. and getting over the line or is it about you know giving students skills that they can use thereafter is it about um, focusing Focusing on things that are not necessarily measured in in a quantitative way. Yeah. Well, um, I would say, unfortunately, it is, but it shouldn't be. You know, I think there's yeah. like, the focus is too much in the leaving cert. Yes, and I mean, you know, th- there's arguments for and against. There, there would be, well, you know, th- one needs a way to be able to quantify. One needs a way to be able to measure. But at the same time, we all know that some of the most valuable learning happens in those environments where things don't have to be measured in, in such mm. a crude way. And that doesn't mean that something cannot be measured. Things can be measured for for, for quality. They can be measured for enjoyment. They can be measured for le- level of interest as well. It's just perhaps not in the same way that... We, we might traditionally look at the way okay. things are measured. We talk about the NCCA often on this programme, the National Council for Curriculum Assessment. So do you, in in the organisation, in the P, PDST. P, PDST, do you basically roll out what they design? Is that the yes, correlation? Yes, the, 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 the NCCA's role is in the whole area of curriculum development. And uh, they they are the authors, really, of the specifications and the curriculum. And having having uh, once they are approved by the minister, uh, basically the PDST and support services like us, Junior Soccer for Teachers is another support service, for example, they would receive those specifications, they would interrogate them, we would look for how these specifications mm. can be transferred into a learning experience for teachers. Okay. And that's the first protocol before the teachers themselves deliver it in the classroom. I know from talking to teachers in advance of today, Kira, some of them will talk about this idea of um, curriculum overload that there's nearly there's two they're trying to teach too many subjects and they can't get around everything that maybe it would be better to either implement even at the higher end you know their more senior end the primary school level some mm-hmm. sort of subject um where pe- students would pick subjects where maybe they you know there would be options that they would pick or that they would have less subjects been taught at primary school that there's just too many to yeah teach. i mean well if 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 i could just maybe start with primary there uh, there was a criticism perhaps that the primary curriculum of 1999 was overloaded and that a lot of subjects were competing for time within a very very short day yeah. or a short week um, and and as a primary school teacher myself I suppose y- you could see shades of that but again I will go back to the primary teacher and the skill that the primary teacher has with regard to integrating subjects that it's not particularly about subjects having siloed time it's about teaching in the most holistic way possible uh, the other thing is important 
important to say here is that the, the, the overload can, is a reality, but sometimes it can be a perception when you look at the other stuff, I use the word stuff quite crudely here, that schools and teachers um, are, are, are targeted at outside of mm. um, statutory subjects. I'm talking about programmes and initiatives and other pressures, let's say, that come on schools with regard to stuff like, like, like climate change, like litter and what I call the ills of society. Uh, that, that, that's whatever issues society so you mean have, that everything has sort uh, of you been know, that, that schools will have teachers. to solve it now th- certainly the, the, the curriculum w- would address an awful lot of those but there is there is pressure on schools I suppose to be the the, the ameliorator of a lot of other ills outside of the work of hmm. the, the general curriculum and that can lead to a perception of overload as well Can I just ask you Kira, just you know by way of other conversations or other interviews that we've conducted here in the station there's a couple of different things or if you like, they're nearly like new subjects or new issues that come up. And I just wonder, are they actually being taught in school just out of curiosity? For instance, the whole idea of the the changes to the relationship in sexual education. So consent, is that something, the issues maybe around well-being and social media, are they part of the curriculum in school now? Uh, well, the the social and health, personal education would, I suppose, zone in on the whole area of well well being, a positive school climate, and the whole area of wellness and safety. And it's a really, really broad area. And I suppose the relationships and sexuality um, uh, program, which was first introduced there in the nineties, uh, that was what it was at the time. Mm. But since the nineties, we have additional. Um, issues that are that are emerging, such as consent, such as gender, uh, transgender uh, issues, uh, things that didn't exist, I suppose, back twenty years ago. That are now finding them th- themselves into their way into the domain. Well, they're just being discussed education. More. Yeah, but I suppose there are realities in society as well, and uh, and students bring those kind of issues uh, into the schools with them, and ultimately, I suppose, they do impact on their sense of wellness. And wellness will always impact on a student's ability mm. to learn well and to access uh, access learning in a positive way. So one can't ignore them uh, and of course there is a place for them within within a school's uh, a duty in I terms of I suppose that's where wellness. a lot of teachers would see this idea, I know from talking to them even anecdotally about curriculum overload is that you know they'll say well we hear these things when discussed on the radio and then somebody will say well I'll leave it up to the schools to do and you know yeah. that kind of, that all of a sudden that topic goes into school now, time yeah, and, and where do you fit Yeah, it? and that's the point I'm trying to make I suppose that there is curriculum and one might argue for the fact that the curriculum is bloated and very overloaded but there is the other societal issues that, that come into place too. Having said that there is a space in parts of the curriculum that can deal very well uh, with those issues but they are new issues and teachers need support like anybody else in yeah. navigating those new issues. What is it that the uh, the PDST are hoping to do? I suppose over the course of the next year, what are the priorities for yourselves? Uh, oh my God, there, are, there there are many of them. <laughs> How long there do you are got? very <laughs> many of them. Uh, I mean, start. I suppose that any new area of policy or curriculum will always be a priority uh, for the PDST because that is what we do and that is what we're instructed to do. Um, at primary level, at the moment, I suppose uh, we're we're quite a way into now um, um, supporting teachers with the new primary language curriculum. And that, that, that's in train. Uh, the primary maths curriculum will, will follow mm-hmm. in the next next number of years. And I suppose underpinning that will be a review of the entire primary curriculum. So that will be a big yeah. piece for us. Uh, at post-primary level, we don't have a remit for junior cycle. Our remit is for senior cycle. And at the moment, there's a review of senior cycle going on. But already, um, the PDST are supporting schools now with the introduction of computer science, of uh, physical education, as a Leaving Cert subject, which is new, yeah. and also the, the new subject of politics and society. And other Leaving Cert subjects, such as economics and agricultural science, are all been reviewed. Mm-hmm. So there are big ticket items at senior cycle at the moment. But outside of the curriculum, I suppose, the whole curriculum and specification domain, 
other other huge areas for us at the moment are you mentioned it earlier the whole area of well-being mm. and all that comes with that uh, relationships and sexuality no doubt will will enter our our, our work plan in a more do, in, a, in a more prominent way now in, in the next few months also digital technologies we've a whole wing in the PDST technology in education on our digital technologies team um, I suppose our remit is very very focused on realising the, the digital strategy for schools so that's a huge part of what we do um, using technolo- technology as a tool to enhance teaching learning assessment and also our the PDST Webwise team is responsible okay. for the whole area of cyber safety. And just Kira, with such a focus on kind of health and well-being and wellness at the moment, a lot of people would talk about the access to and the amount of time that kids get for play, play activity, mm-hmm. physical education within the school day. If you're to listen to any of the experts, they'll tell you that like kids should be getting the guts of a good 60 minutes hard activity every single day, which I'm sure many kids aren't aren't getting for a variety of different reasons. Mm-hmm. But how much of the school time should should be allocated towards that? Like how much of that 60 minutes should yeah. kids be getting in school? I mean, I suppose playful learning, uh, we call it, rather than than play. Uh, playful learning, it doesn't necessarily occupy a, a particular stint of the day. Playful learning is a methodology that should be used throughout the day and should permeate the way young children learn. And playful learning is active, it's stimulating, it's interested, it's interesting, it's fun and it has a focused learning. So I suppose it's very important to understand what we mean by play. You can talk about free play, which is where children just play with abandon. So with it's no, not just PE? Absolutely not. And it's not yeah. just children, you know, playing around um, kind of casually with a mound of blocks either, although that has its own value. But playful learning is where um, an adult, I suppose, has a role in scaffolding their learning environment and might intervene with maybe questions that may lead to further learning and of knowledge and it has a learning focus so it's it, it's it's not direct teaching but it's somewhere in between so that the child is still has a spontaneity still has a sense of joy in play but very much scaffolded and supported by the adult who comes in with learning opportunities okay. where it's appropriate you know? what's the benefit of that Benefit of it is, I suppose, what is good learning? Good learning is meaningful. Good learning is interesting. Good learning is active. Good learning is interaction and collaborative. And play is all those things. And playful learning is all those things when it is structured in such a way that we know that valuable learning Mm. will come out of it. Because a lot of people would probably think that's very focused around maybe the more the junior classes in particular at primary school. Absolutely. But there's probably subjects, you know, and I remember seeing a really interesting video clip actually on, on YouTube last year when we were we're talking about how consent and issues around consent are taught in school. And there was a fantastic little video clip that asked, you know, um, boys and girls, various different ages, a series of questions and how they felt at a certain time. But because the subject I thought was was being taught, taught um, in an interactive environment, yeah. I thought there was a, a much better message been sent to the kids then you know sitting you read this paragraph in the textbook and I'll read the next one like absolutely absolutely and I mean th- that, that's why I would say I suppose that, that play doesn't only have a role in the very very young classes and again I'll go back to what we mean by play uh, play is active it's interactive it's collaborative it's any activity that allows a student I suppose to learn in, in that way and um, you know a play doesn't have to involve playing with sand and water uh, yeah. older children can very much be involved in playful learning through the use of digital technologies for example 
and any activity that involves a sense of structure where there are rules or turn taking mm-hmm. and a chance to interact with each other. Like if you go into any Irish classroom now, um, you won't see rows of desks and silent classrooms. You'll see very industrious classrooms where children are more likely to be sitting in circles okay. or sitting in groups. So I'd reiterate that this, this sense of play doesn't only have a place with very, very young children. It very much has a place all the way up to the primary school. Kira, in really interesting conversation and my thanks to you for your time today. That is Kira O'Donnell, who's the National Director with the Professional Development Service for Teachers. Do stay with us. You're listening to News Talks Between the Lines programme. We'll be back with more on this issue in just a moment. Between the Lines on News Talk. Well, you're welcome back to this week's Between the Lines programme with myself, Andrea Gilligan. Today, we're discussing the future of education, how to teach our children in early years and in primary school. And we're asking, is there enough play? Well, joining me on the line now is Gillian Lake, who's an assistant professor in early childhood education and also the chair of the postgraduate studies by research at a DCU Institute of Education as well. Gillian, you're very welcome to the programme. Um, just first of all, we were talking actually in the first part of the programme program today about play learning or playful learning or playful teaching. Can you just give us your take on that and the importance of it? Yeah, sure. Um, well, if, if the, the, the children and the teachers are following um, the ASHTA curricular framework, which, which is a curricular framework that's developed to and designed to support children from birth to six, we're talking about uh, play underpinning everything that the child does in school. So it's a playful approach to learning. It's um, something that doesn't require a, a lot of formal instruction, but it requires a lot of enabling um, by the teacher and a more facilitative role for the teacher. Um, and it's in- extremely important. Um, we know that children learn through interactions with their peers. We know that they learn through interactions with their teacher. And play is a very naturalistic and natural way for children to do this. And in what way can parents help out or assist or try to keep that um, that type of teaching going then when the kid actually goes home in the evening or in the afternoon? Well, pa- parents do it quite naturally as well. And actually, children do it quite naturally. So um, a lot of the time we follow the lead of the child. Um, we're not saying we wouldn't argue for a completely child-initiated um, situation. However, it can be adult-initiated and child-initiated, so a, a balance of both. But taking the lead from the child, if the child uh, wants to engage in a pretend scenario, wants to dress up, wants to even read a book, all of these things can be done in a, play, in a playful way. Um, parents can. The most important thing a parent can actually do for a child is to read to it. So reading to the child in a very playful manner, using voices, using dramatization, um, even just playing games with rules with children, um, so any sort of ball games, any sort of even something down to as, as rudimentary as peekaboo can be something that can, can teach children turn-taking. Um, I spy in the car, um, counting games, um, there's lots of opportunities within the home, baking, pairing socks, uh, taking the washing out of the washing machine, you name it, anything can be done in a play-orientated way. Do we do it well here by comparison to other education frameworks across the EU? I think we're, we're improving. I think we're getting much better at it now. I think there's a much better understanding, particularly with the advent of Ashther and, and having it um, so central to the way children are taught and the way we engage with children now. I think we're becoming much more aware of the benefits of play. There's a lot more to do. And particularly in the transition from children, the children go through from preschool to primary school and um, 
they're in a very free environment in the preschool environment and they tend to still go into quite a formalized situation when they go into to primary school and the primary school environment. However, that's getting much better and with um, the continuation of continual professional development of Ashther and the understanding of the research that's out there um, and actually the research that's going on, we ourselves are involved in a, in a, a landmark cross-European study at the Institute of Education on with, with play as its central tennis mm. um, and it's being used to, to support children in very marginalized communities across Europe and play is the center of that study. So with the, with the use of research like this, we can actually understand a lot more and observe children in, in this natural environment. Is there a reluctance or how has it been accepted, the idea of kind of enough play in the, in the actual school environment or the classroom environment, um, Gillian. Is there a, reluct- a reluctance among teachers to try and um, incorporate this? I, I don't think there's a reluctance. Um, I think that um, traditionally it would have been a very formal environment, so you have to understand that teachers are working with, with what has been done for, for many, many years. And I think that with the um, incorporation of and, and the communication now and the professionalization actually of the workforce in the preschool area, I think that is gaining traction and the respect that teachers have for preschool is, is gaining traction as well. Um, and so with that, that actually preschools and, and the way preschool is initiated and the way preschool is delivered is having a much more profound effect on the way teachers are interacting. And also teachers are gaining a much better understanding of play and its uses, and right up the school. Um, so even in my own in my own child's school, it's happening hugely, and I can see the benefits of my son and daughter being uh, using play. So I don't think there's a reluctance. I think there's a gradual understanding of its benefits. There's an all, always quite a lot of talk, Gillian, in, in recent times in particular about the use of social media and kind of, you know, tablets and phones and computers and laptops and, and, and all of that. What sort of a role does technology play in, technology in terms actually, of play? Uh, yeah, technology actually has quite a, a good role to play. I think there's a certain fear around technology, quite understandably, particularly among parents, that perhaps it's going to have a detrimental effect on children's development um, and certainly if children are left to their, their own uh, devices, if you'll pardon the pun, are left to, their, to themselves to, to interact with technology, that's when it can become a problem. However, we do know that the central, the most important thing to remember with technology is actually the interaction that you have with your child when, when engaging with technology. So if the child is engaged in playing a game, that actually the adult is there with the child interacting, talking, using language, and developing and supporting and scaffolding that child while the child is interacting. So I don't think technology is all bad, certainly not. I think it definitely has a place, and we have to accept that actually technology is part and parcel now of children's lives into the future. So it's how we manage that as the adults in the relationship. I understand the, the Finnish model is sort of you know held up as kind of the, um, the, the one to emulate, if you like. How far away are... How different are we in terms of what they do in Finland? Yeah, so in Scandinavia in general, there would be much more reliance on outdoor learning. Um, and I think um, we in Ireland have, have a little slight aversion to that to, due to our weather. However, um, I think in Scandinavia, they, they also would, would, could put mm. up that argument. However, 
um, I think they subscribe to the no bad weather, just bad clothing um, adage. Yeah, funny, we spoke to somebody here actually on the programme before, um, a, an early childhood um, educational provider in, in County Donegal, and a lot of what they do is based outdoors, and, and that's what they kind of say, is that it, it's not that, you know, we um, that we shouldn't have or operate educational settings in the outdoors. It's it's just that we we don't dress appropriately for the weather here. Yeah, and I think actually there's that there's a lot of that going on now that the outdoors is being brought indoors and and vice versa, um, and indoors is being brought outdoors. So you see a lot of evidence of really good practice, particularly in preschool settings now, of uh, mud the likes of mud kitchens, the likes of. Um, outdoor um, play areas that incorporate the, the, the day-to-day learning of children outside. And it's really good for, for developing risk and resilience in children. It's really good for developing their problem-solving skills. And it's, there's absolutely no reason why we can't, uh, we can't embrace that, actually, in Ireland. It's a very, we, we operate in very safe environments for children. And once it's adequately supervised, and the children dress appropriately, there's really no reason why we can't embrace it. We were talking um, a little bit earlier in the programme to Akira O'Donnell from the uh, the PT, the P, P, DST, I should say. Yeah. And um, we were just talking about, I suppose, the idea of, you know, the various different types of subjects that are now being introduced into the school environment. And there's probably more of a focus on, you know, human health and well-being and, and, and areas around that. Is that something that in, in any way has been introduced in the early uh, childhood part of the education system? Yeah, so one of the main themes of the curricular framework, Ashter, actually is well-being um, so there's a huge emphasis. The other, the other main theme of, of Ashter, one of the four themes, is identity and belonging. So the, the child's sense of self and self-efficacy is really central, and the holistic development of the child is, is really important. So the child is put at the centre, and their holistic development is taken into consideration. I would say it's not only about the child's social and emotional development and, and whether they're happy or not. It's actually about whether they're ad- being adequately challenged. That is part of children's well-being. So providing the, the correct amount of challenge for the child, providing learning experiences that are actually meaningful and contextually based for that child and that are culture specific is incredibly important for their social and emotional well-being. And have you experienced or would you have heard, Gillian, of any pushback from providers or from teaching staff in, in, in terms of trying to rule that out? Or, you know, is there, is there a welcome attitude towards it? I think there is now. I think with the, the focus on children's well-being and the focus on early intervention, in general, in, in young children's learning, I think there's, um, I think practitioners are nervous and want to do the right thing and are increasingly invested in trying to support children in a holistic way. It's really important that that is supported by research. It's really important that it's, that it's supported by uh, continuing professional development and training so that practitioners have the confidence to interact with children in this way. Can parents decide themselves when they're sending their child to perhaps an early um, childhood educational um, facility, Gillian, you know, what type of play or teaching or education they want them to have? Or or is it a case just like, you know, primary schools, public primary schools, where it's just the same um, curriculum or syllabus that's rolled out? I think they have a say. I think they I think they should be um, the partners in their child's education. And actually, there's a bit of a triad there. You have the parent you have the practitioner and you have the child and all three should have say and I suppose that comes into play when it comes to the uh, assessment and observation of children. So children at an early age should be assessed by observation and that observation should go home to the parent where the parent has an opportunity 
to um, have their say in relation to what has been observed of the child and that, that that is shared with the child and the child actually has power and agency to exact what they meant about what happened in that particular observation. And if, so, par- yeah, if parents are listening to this today, perhaps they have a, you know, their child hasn't actually gone to an early childhood educational centre just yet, but maybe they want to get more information, you know, about kind of what's out there or what the options are or the different types of um, maybe syllabuses or curriculums that are available. Where can they get that? Um, I think that the, what, what's really, really important is that they consult the NCCA website first, so the National Council for Curriculum and Assessment because all settings, no matter what um, pedagogical approach they take, should be using ASHTER, that, cur- that national curricular framework. Um, so that's the first port of call. After that, um, I guess they can consult with the, the research if they're, if they're so inclined. Um, our website is obviously a good one to consult with, and, and the academic journals. Um, there are lots of parenting websites out there as well. But actually, the most important thing to do is actually to talk to the practitioners and the settings themselves negotiate, interact and educate themselves by actually having a conversation with their local centre and I think they'll get the best information from uh, the people who are on the front line themselves. Really interesting advice. My thanks to Gillian Lake, who's the Assistant Professor in Early Childhood Education and also the Chair of the Postgraduate Studies at Research at DCU Institute of Education for joining us on the programme today. You're listening to News Talks Between the Lines programme. We'll be back with more on this issue in just a moment. Between the Lines on News Talk. Well, you're welcome back to the final part of News Talks Between the Lines programme with myself, Andrea Gilligan. Today, we've been discussing the future of the education system, but how we teach our kids in particular in the early years and also in primary school and asking, are they getting enough play? Well, joining us now in studio is Valerie Gaynor, who's the manager of Creative Kids and Co. in Walkinstown in Dublin 12, um, which is a part-time service catering for over about 150 preschool and after-school children. Valerie, you're very welcome to the programme. Thanks very much for joining us. Thank you. Um, You're a private um, organisation, as I mentioned there. It's preschool and after school children. Is that right? That's correct. Yeah, that's correct. And just in terms of the organisation, how long are you you running or up and running? So the service is operation in Walking Central since 2009. Um, It started off originally with just one small classroom and 20 children. Right. Um, The free preschool scheme was introduced in 2010. So from there on, the service has increased in numbers year on year. So we're now at 108 um, preschool children who are in their free preschool years. And then we have up to about 75 after school children between breakfast service and after school each day. So obviously there's been huge changes in terms of the type of organisation, particularly as you mentioned there, the numbers as well, Valerie. Absolutely. Um, There's been lots of changes over the years. Um, Early years has been the the fastest change in sector, I think, in Ireland at the moment from an educational perspective, um, as well as a practice perspective. Uh, The introduction of Ashter. Our framework for curriculum in the early years has made huge um, inroads in Mm. the sector. There has been changeover in a lot of places from community play groups to the majority of services now being play-based services implementing the Ashtar framework in Ireland. Mm -hmm. And obviously something we talk about it quite a lot when when we do programmes specifically around the um, childcare sector and we talk a lot about you know crash fees and and the cost on parents and I suppose a lot of that comes too from the likes of new upgrades syllabuses curriculums and regulations that are being brought in 
albeit they're all needed, um, you know, to, 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 to certainly to enhance the service and to offer a safer, a safe environment for children. But just just by way of a, as a business owner in this area, Valerie, just what's your own kind of perspective on that? Um, well, quality costs. Um, there's no doubt about that. Um, we're, we're very regulated. We have the two slippery school regulations. Um, there's actually a lot of services closing at the moment due to the fact that there's building regulations, fire safety certificates required. There's a whole re-registration process undergoing currently where services registered under the new regulations of 2016 are having to currently re-register. Um, I know in Dublin 12 there have been a number of services have closed down due to not being able to comply with the fire safety regulations and these are the things that cost a lot of money. Unfortunately the funding isn't there so in, in private provision the cost is barely, the, the fees that are being charged to parents currently are barely covering the costs in a lot of instances. Um, there was recent statistics produced by the Department of Children and Youth Affairs where the average cost to a parent is about €187 Euro per week nationwide. Um, that doesn't really cover the cost of a place. Right. 70% of most income coming into services goes straight back out in wages. And yet we're still very lowly paid. Um, the average pay rate currently is in and around just under €12, Euro, which is below the living wage. So there's a lot of work needed and a lot of funding needed to go into the early year sector at the moment. I presume that obviously these are regulations that um, businesses have to adhere to and to and to um, to make sure that they're in line with. Obviously, many people will say, "Look, they're they're badly needed." Absolutely. Can I ask you, Valerie, just the um, what about insurance? Because that's something that's highlighted. Well, I suppose insurance is a cost. Um, also, you know, we have a high claim culture in Ireland. So once, uh, you know, a child may fall and hurt themselves and that's a normal part of growing up. However, in some cases, a claim can follow these incidences and that's going to rocket up the cost okay. of insurance for providers. So look, we're kind of just talking at the outset about the the, the actual the business model or the in, the environment, I suppose that that you're working under, and like so many other early child um, early childhood educational providers, will be in the same position as yourself. But how difficult is it to um, roll out these various different types of curriculum and syllabus that are that are being developed, if you like, at the moment? Like, what is there much of a cost on providers to do that? There is indeed. I suppose, you know, um, the, the great thing about the earlier sector in Ireland is that they're very willing. We're all very willing. Um, there is a huge amount of work involved on people's own personal time. I think it's the dedication and commitment of practitioners out there that, and, it, and it's absolutely wonderful, but wrong. Um, I think, you know, we don't get funded for non-contact time. So, the hours that are funded under the free preschool scheme are the three hours per day and they're all contact time. So, you know, what it doesn't do you mean, just, sorry, just happen. to clarify by contact time. So already. contact time is the time that the teacher is in the room with the children. So okay. those three hours that the children is there, um, there's no planning hour, no planning time funded. So, you know, the curriculum doesn't just happen. It has to be implemented. It has to be planned for. Um, in our service, we operate um, uh, an emergent inquiry-based curriculum where we're following the children's interests because children learn by doing and they mm. learn when you do follow their, their own interests. They're much more actively engaged when they're agents in their own learning. But, you know, it doesn't just happen by turning up to work at nine o'clock in the morning. There's a lot of planning that takes place. There's, for example, if we take uh, one of the things we would have done 
last year, say, the children developed an interest in building. So we decided to develop our curriculum based on this. So there was a bit of research required. Uh, We invited an architect in. Um, again, this is all happens so outside this is, of ours. And just to clarify, is this a cost? This is a cost on, on you as the provider? It is a cost on us as the provider. And, you know, we don't ask parents for extra funding or for extra money for this. The majority of the children attending our service are free. They pay nothing. So they are funded by the free preschool scheme, which currently funds sixty nine fifty per child per week. Our fees are 85 um, if you have a graduate in the service leading the, se- the, the, the session, you get 80-50. And in, in services out in Dunleary Ratdown, where rates and rents are the highest in the country, mm. services are really struggling to meet that shortfall between the funding and what we're not allowed to charge. Okay. And is that, I mean, is it feasible then to kind of do the sort of... Um, additional teaching elements that you're talking about like just by way for instance of bringing in the architect to show yourselves as the providers how you could perhaps you know enhance the children's learning it it, it is and it isn't Um, we we would rely a lot on the goodwill of parents Um, but not every service would have the ability to engage parents on the level that we do in that you know and again there's a cost involved in this we wouldn't have parent meetings quite regularly and you know we'd be very tuned into you know what do you work at and we kind of try and tap into those resources Um, to get a farm into a preschool even for three hours costs 300 euro a pet and farm so these are things that we have to ask parents to pay for or the provider themselves has to has to foot the bill for these things, and the learning that the learning that is achieved by the children in these extra extra things that you know, and and you're kind of always conscious of you know, well, can I ask the parents to pay for this? In order to change anything that we do, we need to have it in our fees policy. Um, this is dictated to us by Pubble that we have to have everything up front. Mm-hmm. So we have to change something. We need to give a month's notice. So. You know, say, for example, we decide we are going to bring the farm in. Well, then we have to go, oh, gosh, no, we have to change our fees policy and it has to be approved by our child care committee. And then we can give the parents a letter and, and then we have to issue new letters to all the parents to say that we've changed our fees policy. So it's quite prohibitive and it's quite restrictive. So, yeah, we have to be very, very creative, very, very inventive. And a lot of our own time is spent delivering programmes on behalf of the government, So might do, I say. do you kind of say then at the start of the year, at the, scar- at the start of the term, if you like, when a child starts that, you know, well, we're going to, you know, display our wish list of stuff that we yeah. may or may not do at the start so that in the event you do take in the petting farm that it's, it's already there. Or- not really. You know, um, we might put in that there's going to be a school tour at some stage during the year. But the other things, you know, a lot of our planning in our service depends on the children's interests and what the children are actually actively interested in. There's absolutely no point in bringing in a petting farm if the children aren't yeah, interested, okay, you enough. know. So, I mean, it's always going to be, you know, you're always going to have happy children when, when some mm. baby animals come in, of course. Um, but yeah, you need to be planning that well okay. in advance on your own time. Obviously, that's very interactive, the idea of the, the petting farm. And that's actually something we've been talking about today as well, Valerie, with both um, our previous guests, Gillian Lake and Kira O'Donnell, and this idea of whether or not there's enough um, educational play being allocated or playtime being allocated to children. Is that something, is that difficult to do for all of the reasons we discussed? I mean, in terms of the, the regulations, how prohibitive it is, and even just from, from an insurance cost as well, or that 
that different type of teaching model, is it? Well, we're very blessed. Um, you know, I feel very privileged to work in an early year setting and we were a play-based setting. So everything that happens in our setting is play. So we don't actually enforce any strict regiments or routines on the children. Our children play for the entire session. Um, and through their play, we observe and we implement curriculum ideas through what we see coming from the children. Um, some of our children are five years of age. Are the same five-year-olds in junior or senior infants getting the same experiences? No, they're not, unfortunately. So, you know, a, a child in preschool at five years of age is, in, in our setting, is playing for his entire day. In a primary school classroom, he's not. You know, he, he may be sitting for periods of time. Um, he may be doing his maths, his English. He may be, he may be having to, to work on worksheets mm. because the, the way the curriculum is structured in the primary school system that I'm aware of at the moment is just two curriculum. There's the prescribed curriculum, which is the red books for the primary school, but there's also the Astra framework for the under sixes. And from speaking to primary school teachers in our setting, it's very difficult to implement both. Okay, you and know? that was something we were talking about that, I suppose, the, the, the primary school element of it a, a little bit earlier in the programme. But is it... Um, like, just give us an idea, if you can, Valerie, of the benefits to the very young children, the preschoolers, when they're learning under this in this type of environment, this kind of setting. Children learn through play. They, you know, they make sense of their world through their play. Um, you know, there, there, there's lots of theory out there to back it up. Um, one of the theorists that you know we would we would always look to in the early years, Vygotsky. And he would say that in play, a child is a head taller than himself. So children can really, really engage actively and be agents in their own learning when it happens through their play. For example, um, you know, if you talk about a child in an average early year setting in the home corner making tea, mm -hmm. OK, um, through their imagination, they are they're pouring um, they're tasting, they're using all of their senses, they're engaging with it, they're, they're communicating socially with their peers. Um, that doesn't happen if, if it's prescribed. So if the adult is telling them what to do next, the play doesn't evolve naturally. So there's, there's big, huge pockets of learning okay. being lost straight away. So by... By watching children, we can learn a lot about them. You know, children children bring a lot to the table. They have a lot of expertise. They have a lot of experiences of their own lives that they bring into the setting each day. And, you know, they, they can teach each other. And this happens mm. so organically through their play. Um, when that is taken away and children aren't permitted or allowed to, to engage in that really deep and meaningful play, there's a lot of learning lost, you know, that whole hands-on learning, learning by doing, learning by being, learning by being socially active with mm. each other. Conflict management, you know, yeah. let them argue it out, you know, they, they'll figure out what to do next yeah, yeah. time. It's funny when you say that because it's that even just the getting to know each other and yeah. different personalities, you know, yeah. come to the fore and, and yeah. the engage, just the general engagement or you conversation. Know, it's, or it's how we engage as adults and children do the exact, the exact mm. same thing when we allow them to, you know, yeah. and we don't interfere. I mean, we, we adopt a very hands-off approach, approach in our setting. And, you know, you will see two kids in the corner having a trashing out and 
we'll Not stay, literally. <laughs> we'll stay close by and we'll monitor, but we'll only intervene if they need us to. Um, you know, it, it's really, really important that we allow children to develop and to grow and to figure things out for themselves because they're well capable and they're well able. Mm. Um, and we, we have to give them that credit and just, you know, support when needed. Okay. And we have to, we have, we're, we're very... Um, privileged in the early years that we can have that hands-off approach. Just finally, Valerie, for people listening today that maybe their their child is going to be starting in an early, you know, um, childhood facility and maybe in the, the next term or in the next year. Just what's your advice to people? I suppose um, go for it. Bring them in there. Um, don't be afraid to, you know, let your child be themselves. Be prepared to help settle your child in. Um, you know, in our setting, we we encourage parents to stay with their children. There will be tears, but all children eventually settle in and they wave happily bye to mom. You know, there's to prepare children, I suppose, for for going to preschool. It would be that separation was is the biggest thing. So you know, if you can leave your ch- child for short periods by leaving your ch- child with somebody else while you go to the shops, or you know, um, I suppose the the most difficult children to settle in would be those children who have only been with mom or dad or their main carer up to the point of going to preschool. Um, a lot of children who have been to childminders or who are in crashes tend to settle very easily. Mm. All children are unique and they'll all have their own needs. So yeah. it's to basically support your own child in whatever way you feel is best and whatever you need but talk to the provider tell them what you need tell them what your child needs and the majority of providers will support that transition with you Valerie Gaynor the manager of Creative Kids and Co in Walkenstein in Dublin 12 my thanks to you for joining us in studio today I'm afraid that's all we have time for if you've missed any of the programme you can listen back on the Go Loud app or on Newstalk.com my thanks to the production team as well this morning I'll be back again with Breakfast Briefing on Monday morning from 6 and also with Between the Lines this time next week but for me Andrea Gilligan have a good day